to speak. Come on, let's give him a hand. Thanks. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning to everybody. It's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome to those who are here in person and those joining us online. We're so glad you're with us today. We hope you'll be blessed. Let's start today by imagining ourselves in a different life. I want us to imagine ourselves in the life of a New Testament figure that you can read about in Acts chapter 3. If you'd like to read along with me, I invite you to turn there or pull it up on your phone or you can follow along on the screen. Acts chapter 3. And I'll give you kind of an idea of where we're at in the timeline of the New Testament here. Jesus has finished his earthly ministry, and he's passed on the mantle of that ministry to his followers. And so we now have Peter and John, two of his disciples, who are going to the temple, and they interact with this person that I want us to put ourselves in the place of. So let's start here, Acts chapter 3, just the first couple of verses. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the ninth hour of prayer, or at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So that's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. The name of this particular gate is Beautiful Gate. And here this person asked alms from those who entered the temple. Imagine life as this person. This person who's never been able to walk, who, in order to get anywhere, has to be carried, and who spends his days sitting down. It says that they laid him, so he's on the ground, asking for currency from people that walk by. He's literally living his life in the dust of the pedestrian's feet who are walking by him, engaging in an activity that he can't engage in. Imagine the sameness of that life, the monotony of that life, sitting out at the temple every day. Imagine the hopelessness that he would have felt. And it's not necessarily like a hopelessness of despair. We don't know that he felt that. But certainly, he could not expect reasonably to ever walk And his days are pretty much going to be the same from here on out. The most he's really going to be able to hope for is a few more coins today than he got yesterday. And that's his life. But that's not the life that God has for this person. So let's turn back to this passage and see what happens. Verse 3. Who, this man, seeing Peter and John and about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Imagine that, a life of sitting on the ground, relying on the kindness of others, transformed in an instant by the power of God. Now imagine yourself in the place of this man. Imagine the excitement, the hope for a new life. He could now walk like the people he watched every day. Not only that, he could leap and he could jump for joy, which is exactly what he did. His existence of dust and begging and charitable coins had become an existence full now of opportunity. The world was open before him now. And notice that's not what he was looking for, though. This day, he looked up. When he looked up at Peter and John, he was hoping to get a couple coins, maybe a little bit of food. But God had something different for him. God had the ability to change his life completely, to revolutionize it, and to make it unspeakably better, and that's what God did in his life. I turn our attention to this story today for this reason. 
This, is a, this story serves as a powerful illustration of a spiritual truth. If you're like me, sometimes in your spiritual life, you're like this lame man in this story, not really going anywhere, relying on the, the help of others, and sometimes we're not even looking to the future with any hope, with any hope of what God can do in our lives, of the ways that God can grow us. We're just kind of thinking about where we are, and we're not really going anywhere spiritually. But that's not the life that God has for us. God doesn't want us to have a life of just immobility spiritually, of relying on other people, of just staying where we're at, of a hopelessness about the future. God wants us to have a very, very different type of life. He wants to radically transform us and do this work within us that changes us into the people that we were originally made to be, people who are joyful, peaceful, faithful, productive in the world, doing good, glorifying God, serving the people around us. And this is an ongoing process that goes on through our lives, and that means we can live lives of hope about the future because as we yield to God and as we yield to his spirit, things can get better for us. We get better as the spirit of God works in our lives. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about this inside-out change that God affects in our lives through this mysterious and fascinating aspect of himself called the Holy Spirit. As Pastor already said, we're continuing a series about powerful and positive conversations. And as we have powerful and positive conversations, it's good that we have a basic understanding of certain Christian doctrines, and the doctrine we're looking at here is the Holy Spirit. Of course, we could be talking about any number of aspects of the Holy Spirit and his work in the world today, but I just want to draw your attention to three particular things the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. First, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Second, the Holy Spirit teaches us. And third, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. So the first point is this, the Holy Spirit indwells us, it lives within us. As we think about the indwelling presence of God, I want us to think about temples for a second. Think about places that are set aside for the service of God and the recognition of God's presence. So I'm gonna go through a lot of scriptures over the next 15, 20 minutes, okay? So don't feel like you have to turn with me to every scripture that we go to. We'll have them on the screen. The first one I wanna to go to is this one, Exodus 40, 38. This is a passage about the tabernacle, which was an elaborate tent. It was a mobile temple that the children of Israel could carry with them. And they had it after they left their bondage in Egypt and as they traveled in the desert and as they went into the promised land. And here's what we read about the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 38. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here God signifies his presence at the tabernacle with a cloud by day and fire by night, a pillar of fire by night. Keep that imagery in mind. Now let's move ahead in the timeline of Hebrew history and we'll go to 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. This is a passage that concerns the consecration of the temple in Jerusalem. So at this point in the history of the Hebrew people, they are settled in the promised land and they have built a beautiful edifice to serve as the temple of God. And here's what we read in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. When God had finished praying, or when Solomon had finished praying, Solomon's the king at this time, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. So here's the imagery that we have. We have the temple being consecrated, fire coming down from heaven, and this luminosity of some kind that is filling the temple such that the priests can't even go inside. When all the children of Israel, we read in verse three, saw how the fire came down 
and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. They saw God's presence in the fire, in the light, and they praised him for being present there at the temple. Okay, now we're going to fast forward again down the timeline of history, and we're going to go to the book of Acts once again. Now we're in the New Testament, and we're going to look at a passage after Jesus has completed his earthly ministry, and the day that we're going to look at was a special day of religious celebration for the Jewish people. It's the day of Pentecost, and Pentecost was the name of that celebration. And we read here about the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples of Jesus, and I want us to pay very close attention to the imagery of this passage. Acts 2, 1 through 4, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In this passage, we see this reiteration of the divine fire image associated with God's dwelling places. And so there's this weird imagery of the disciples being gathered together and having over their heads like a flickering flame, like a candle or something. And that divine fire is showing us that God now is consecrating a new dwelling. God is consecrating a new temple. And it's over individuals. It wasn't just one big flame in the room. The Bible makes it clear there were flames over the individual heads of Jesus' followers. And so, God is showing us here that there's a new temple and it's individual humans. God's people now are his temples. And please notice also the miracle that follows immediately upon the giving of the Holy Spirit and the signification of these people becoming temples. The miracle is that they are speaking in other tongues. They're speaking in other languages. The disciples miraculously can speak in other languages. On the day of Pentecost, people from all around the world who worship the God of Israel would come together, and there they would engage in worship together. But they came from different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. But here the disciples are able to speak to them miraculously through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the point. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when he comes is speak in the languages of the world. That shows us that this good news of Christ and the good news of the Holy Spirit is for everyone, regardless of demographic distinctions. It's for everyone. Anyone, anywhere can become a temple of the living God. So have you ever been to like a beautiful cathedral, an old world cathedral? I've been to just a few in my life, and I went to one that was particularly staggering. It's probably the most famous cathedral in the world, and it's Notre Dame in Paris. And so I'll tell you the story about us going there. My wife and I were living in the UK at the time, and our anniversary rolled around. This is almost 10 years ago. It was our fifth anniversary. So we decided we were going to go to Paris for our fifth anniversary. I'm going to be honest. It's been hard living up to that one since then. Haven't been back. So we went to Paris for our fifth anniversary. And Steph, my wife, she is an absolute genius at planning trips. Truly, she can find cost-effective ways to do all kinds of fun stuff, and she'll schedule it out, and it's just a lot of fun to travel with her, and she always takes care of that. And so she was really excited about this Paris trip, and she had a couple things she was particularly excited about. One was the Eiffel Tower, and one was Notre Dame. Now, I'm about to share with you a fact about myself. I'm going to show you how insufferable I can be as a, as a person, and so just try not to hate me too much after I tell you this story, all right? 
So stuff like, yeah, I really want to go to the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, she's excited about it, she's telling me about it, and here was my response. This is actually real, I'm ashamed to say. I don't think I want to do all that tourist stuff. That was my response. I want to see, I want to see the real Paris, all right? It's not, I didn't say that, I hope. I don't remember saying that, but I really did say I don't want to do all that tourist stuff, all right? And so Steph knows me pretty well. She knew me pretty well at that point. She knew how to handle that. So she just said, you know what? I'm going to go enjoy the Eiffel Tower in Notre Dame, and you can do whatever you want. So it was our anniversary, so I said, okay, I'm going to go along. I'm going to go along. So she, you know, got the tickets for us to go, and I went along. And of course, no surprise, like the Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame are probably like two of, the fav two of my favorite places I've ever been. So thanks, Steph, <laughs> for that. So we went there, and you know, when you go into Notre Dame, I found it absolutely overwhelming. The artistry and the architecture of it all, which are one and the same, everything is pointing you towards Christ and his ministry. Everything is pointing you towards the presence of God. All of the sculptures, the windows, the statues, it's all just completely overwhelming. It was built to be a special place where you're reminded of God's presence. And you can feel it when you're there. In the midst of the quiet and the beauty, there is a sense of serenity and joy, and this is exactly what the recognition of God's presence does for us. When we recognize that the God of peace and joy and love, the God who framed the entire universe is present, it works a change on us, and we can be still in that presence and enjoy it. You know, simply recognizing that God is present in our lives, simply recognizing that the Holy Spirit has made us a temple can transform us. Recognizing that fact as we go through our days can change us radically. The New Testament era minister and missionary Paul was pointing this out when he wrote to a struggling church in Corinth, the Greece, the following words. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? He makes that point again. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. He's saying to that church at Corinth here, inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this letter, and he's saying to us down through the ages that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we need to recognize that fact and that fact should influence the decisions that we make on a daily basis. There are, of course, many methods by which we recognize the Holy Spirit in our lives and by which we embrace and yield to the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. We call these methods spiritual disciplines. And so, here are some of the spiritual disciplines that we need to be engaging in regularly so that we can have this close communion with the Holy Spirit. Of course, we need to be reading the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Logan talked about this last week. These spiritual disciplines also include meditating carefully in what we read. We shouldn't just read and move on. We can often forget what we read, but we have to, to stop and calm ourselves and actually ponder the things that we've read in the Bible. These spiritual disciplines involve spending time in the presence of God and just quieting ourselves and recognizing God's presence, being in a room by ourselves. This is called contemplative prayer. It's an interesting practice I found very helpful. Just quiet yourself for a period of time, calm your mind, and exist in the presence of God and enjoy it. These practices include, of course, prayer, where we go to God and we tell him what we're dealing with and we ask for help and we thank him for the good things in our lives. They include sacrificial giving. They include serving others, especially others who are suffering. They include corporate worship, like what we're doing today, where we come, we challenge our minds with the Bible, we engage our emotions with singing. In all of these practices, what we're doing is we're recognizing God's presence, 
and we're inviting him to be a part of our lives. And if we seek him in these practices, we, you can do these practices unthinkingly, right? We all know that. We've all done that before. But if you fully engage your mind and your heart in these practices, seeking the Holy Spirit, he will be in our lives and he will be changing us from the inside out into who we were made to be. The second point today is that the Spirit teaches us. In John 14, 25 through 26, Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, said this to his disciples. These are the words of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, that is all things you need to know, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We see in this passage that although Jesus is leaving, although he's not going to be bodily present with his disciples anymore and his earthly ministry is coming to a close, there is another teacher that he is sending to them, and this is a teacher who will never part from them once he's a part of their lives. This is a teacher that they will always carry with them to help them and give them the understanding that they need, teach them all things. In 1 John 2.27, the beloved disciple of Jesus, his, his good friend, John wrote the following words to believers. He said, but the anointing which you have received from him, that is the anointing of the Spirit that you've received from the Holy Spirit, abides in you. That anointing is living within you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. You don't need me to, to explain these things to you. You've got the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him, abide in Christ. There's a lot going on in this verse. There's a whole context to discuss, but here's what I want us just to take from this verse for our purposes today. The Holy Spirit teaches us the truths concerning all things that we need to know. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit, as a matter of fact, as the spirit of truth. Jesus also taught that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives as we engage with him through these spiritual disciplines, expanding our, our minds, helping us have greater understanding, helping free us from warped mindsets, destructive mindsets, so that we can be free. In the writings of Paul, likewise, we see that the Holy Spirit is represented as a teacher. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, we read these words. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So here, once again, we have Paul writing of the Holy Spirit as a teacher. So we have this, Jesus himself referring to the Holy Spirit as a teacher. We have Jesus' beloved disciple John writing of the Holy Spirit to believers as a teacher. And we have Paul, the great missionary who went throughout the Mediterranean world and helped spread Christianity around the world. We have him referring to the Holy Spirit as a teacher. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a truly great teacher in your life? I hope you have. Many of us have teachers that we've had through our lives that have helped us, that have expanded us, that have made us better, that have encouraged us, that have given us hope. I've been blessed to have a number of those teachers in my life. I'm thinking of a few of them now. I had a physics teacher in high school called Mr. Brewer very challenging teacher. He made us all nervous, and it was, it was a tough class. You know, whenever he passed out the tests, you would see every knee in the room bouncing, right? We were just nervous taking these tests, right? But not only was he showing us, you know, the math and teaching us about the basics of gravity and friction and all this stuff, he recognized that he had something that he could be doing for us that was even greater. He could be showing us the mysteries of the universe, and he could be showing us the wonder of the universe, and that's what he did. He challenged us to see the universe in a new way and to understand the physical world in a fascinating way, and it was amazing. 
I've had other teachers, we, we all have a teacher here that we share, so one of my teachers is one of yours, which is Pastor Eddie. And through the years, not only have I learned from him through sermons and through Bible studies and so on, but through conversations where Pastor Eddie has encouraged me and he's given me opportunities and talked to me about those opportunities and helped me to understand things. It's an important part of teaching is that relationship that can exist there. One other teacher I'll talk about really quick. I've got to talk about a teacher who I had here at this church and he, in his job, he just kind of moved along with people in my grade level. So I had him for a couple of years in junior high, a couple of years in high school, and a couple of years in college, as a matter of fact. And that was Steve Boshin. Some of you know him. And so Steve taught me a lot of important things, but he taught me a life motto that I've carried with me to this day, and it's this, full-time ministry, period. He explained that far too many Christians have this barrier in their thinking where they create a distinction between Christians who are in full-time ministry and Christians who aren't in full-time ministry. And he said, wrong. There are Christians who get paid by ministries and Christians who don't, but if you're a follower of Christ, you are called to full-time ministry. You're supposed to be ministering to the people around you. You're supposed to be living the life of Christ, loving those people, serving God, full-time ministry, period. This is something he taught in junior high and it's something I've been carrying with me ever since. What he was doing there was he was breaking down an unhelpful conception in my mind, breaking down barriers. And this is what teachers do. They break down barriers. They have relationships with us to help us grow. They awaken our eyes and, and minds to the wonder of existence. We're blessed by our committed and loving human teachers, but we have an even greater teacher than them. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives as a teacher. We have the divine, infinite intelligence of the Spirit who, when we will let him, will interact with our own minds and expand us intellectually. And this happens, again, through those spiritual disciplines that we've been discussing. But he won't only increase our understanding. The Holy Spirit does other things for us as well, other positive things within our lives. And that brings us to the third point today, which is this. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 5. The last verses you didn't need to turn to, but I'd like you to read these along with me uh, wherever you are. So Galatians chapter 5, one of the most famous passages related to the Holy Spirit. In verses 19 through 23 of this chapter, we see that our base, fleshly, kind of biological impulses lead us to one type of life. When we give in to every impulse of the flesh, that leads us to one type of existence, but then we have a contrasting vision here as well of what a life is like when it is lived under the influence of the Spirit of God. I think most of us know that if we just give in to all of our biological impulses at all times, things don't turn out too well. You may, you may have some stories in your own biography that illustrate the point, I certainly do. And of course, I don't mean to say there's anything wrong with biological impulses as such, but whenever they rule the show, whenever they run the show, rule the roost, we're in trouble. And there's a huge difference between the life that is ruled by the animal passions and the life that is ruled by the Spirit of God. So Galatians 5, 19 through 23, here's what we read. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. Okay, you may be thinking, so far, so good. I'm not a sorcerer, right? So, but here's the thing. Look at the next one, outbursts of wrath. Have you had one of those this week? Unfortunately, I can say that I did. Selfish ambitions. Whenever you look at the future, is it, is it one where you're selfishly ambitious to accomplish certain things? Dissensions, this is where people are quarreling and not getting wrong. Heresies, envy, 
murders, drunkenness, revelries. Revelries not meaning just like a nice get-together where we all have a good time, but this is a, a gathering where people are hurting themselves and hurting other people with obviously destructive behavior and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, the kingdom of God has no place for behavior that is destructive because the kingdom of God is about wholeness and goodness and love. So, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, here's the contrasting vision, the fruit of the Spirit, that is, the fruit that the Spirit will produce in the life of someone who is yielded to the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The life guided solely by the flesh is one that ultimately empties us out and destroys us. But the life guided by the Spirit is one that makes us into the people that we were made to be. And deep down, whether we recognize it or not, these are the people that we want to be. People whose lives are defined by joy and peace and goodness and so on. And when we have these fruit in our lives, not only do we receive the blessing of that fruit, but other people receive the blessing of that fruit as well. When you live a life characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, other people notice and are blessed by it. It's a powerful testimony to have a life that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the key to this passage. The fruit of the Spirit is available to us all at any time if the Holy Spirit was within us. We simply have to yield to his presence and the power flows through us producing the fruit. And again, we do that through those spiritual disciplines. I'm reminded of one of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes. It's one of his most famous because it's so good and it's so powerful. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, he wrote this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. He's saying, look, we're just messing about with kind of like making our animal passions satisfied, making the organism happy, and we forget that spiritual infinite joy is on offer if we'll recognize it and receive it. He goes on and describes us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Infinite joy and love and goodness are offered to us through the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit lives in you at any time, at this very moment, we can quiet ourselves, recognize his presence, and enjoy it. It's here. He's with us now. The God of the universe, of all the wonders in this world and beyond it, living within us, in our presence at this very moment, making us into people who can love him more and love the people around us more, making us who we were meant to be and promising us a destiny destiny beyond imagination. You know, there are many other truths related to the Holy Spirit that we could have covered today. We could have talked about how the Holy Spirit is a seal on our lives for the new world. We could have talked about how the Holy Spirit gives us gifts that we can use in the service of others, in the service of ministry. But as I conclude, I just want us to consider One interesting fact about the Holy Spirit, one that I find very interesting, and it's this. The Holy Spirit appears in the first passage of the Bible, in the opening chapter of the Bible, and in the concluding chapter of the Bible. So in the first chapter of Genesis, we see the Holy Spirit, and in the last chapter of Revelation, we see the Holy Spirit. I want to talk for just a second about what we see in those passages. In Genesis, we see the Holy Spirit present and as an agent in the creation 
of this universe that we inhabit. And while the creation of the universe was completed, the Holy Spirit is still engaged, and we're reminded in this passage that the Holy Spirit is still engaged in the act of creation because he's working new creation in our lives, as we've been discussing today. Whenever Jesus had a chat with a religious leader called Nicodemus, and Pastor Eddie talked about this a couple of weeks ago, he told this religious leader, more or less, that regardless of all of the religious practices that were in that religious leader's life, that religious leader, Nicodemus, what he needed was to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, that is to have a new life and become a new creation in the Spirit of God. So the Spirit is still creating, is still working. And speaking of new creation, on the last page of the Bible, in Revelation 22, there's a glorious vision of a new and remade universe. A universe that's been redeemed by Christ. You know, we often think of Christ as redeeming us as individuals, and he does, but he redeems all of it. The Bible teaches us that Jesus, after he completed his teaching ministry, he went of his own choice to a cross, and he died a slave's death, a death of torture, the flesh hanging in ribbons from his body, bleeding profusely on a Roman cross, and he did it. And what was happening in that moment, that inconceivable, amazing moment, is that the ultimate reality, the transcendence of existence, had become man and was facing the ultimate destruction of death, and in doing so, he conquered it. The death and dissolution and all of these problems in our souls and in the physical world, all these things we see around us, he conquered all of that, death, destruction, sin. He conquered it, he rose from the grave a few days later, triumphant, creating a new church and creating a new universe that we'll all inhabit one that is free from death, destruction, sin, and suffering. And so we have that vision, and then we have the Holy Spirit in the midst of that vision saying one word, the last we hear from the Holy Spirit in the Bible, and that one word is this, come. The Holy Spirit is inviting, inviting us to that kingdom. And the Holy Spirit's with us today, inviting all of us. Even if you've been walking with Christ for 50 years, the Holy Spirit's inviting you today, inviting you to know him more, to be more that person you were made to be, more a person of goodness and love, more, 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 is what he's got an offer, just to make us into people who love God and love people well. He's inviting all of us. But maybe you're here and you've never had a relationship with God, never connected with God in any personal way before. And in that case, the Holy Spirit is here, we believe, asking you, inviting you to come into that relationship. Perhaps you feel it even now, the Holy Spirit calling you into this kingdom of God to commit your life to that relationship and following him. The Bible tells us that we can accept this invitation into this kingdom, into this relationship through belief in Christ. It's as simple as receiving Christ and he comes into your life through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit, So some may be here today and who want to receive Christ, and if that's the case, we'll just have a second to pray. And so if you're here or if you're watching online at home and you want to receive Christ in your life, let me ask you to just pray silently wherever you are with me. So let's bow our heads together as a group here.